Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. I wouldn't say we fell in love right away. I think we were, as they call it in the biz, trauma bonding. And then after eight years of being insufferably sober, I started drinking again. Addicts tend to be rather sensitive people. Aren't you Mark Maron? I'm like, yeah. And she goes, what happened to you? Hey, this is Anna David. You are listening to Recover Girl podcast about addiction recovery, sharing your dark to find your light. If you want to know more about this podcast, you can go to my site, lighthustler.com. You can subscribe to it, by the way, by going to annadavid.com slash iTunes. I have a very cool thing to tell you about subscribing, but I'm going to tell you that in a second. First, I'm going to tell you about my guest, His name is Brian Cuban. You may know him because he is a big-time recovery advocate, attorney, best-selling author of two books about his recovery, and the brother of Shark Tank star and Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. In this episode, we talk a lot about Mark. We also talk about what it's like to be a man with an eating disorder when you are not supposed to be talking about that. He walks us through what it, how it developed, starting with a childhood incident, walking us through college, and how it impacts his life today. We also talk about uh, when he was suicidal and how his brothers intervened on that. And uh, we talk about his life in general. What an amazing guy. So uh, what I wanted to tell you about subscribing is I am running a contest. You are listening to this episode. If you write a review, take a screen grab, email it to me, Anna at AnnaDavid.com. I'm giving away something so cool, hot off the press, Light Hustler necklaces. They retail for $64. If you want to see what they look like, I'm wearing one on my Facebook profile. Anyway, they're super, super cool. Um, take a screen, review this podcast, take a screen grab, email it to me, Anna at AnnaDavid.com. I am going to pick one name and send you this super badass necklace that I bought, by the way. And I'm giving it to you because I'm so grateful when I get reviews. I am going to run this contest for one week. That means uh, this episode was released on the 5th. That means until the Tuesday, the 12th, you can do that. And um, if you've already reviewed it, I'm so sorry. I'll run something else really cool for you. Anyway, enough from me. This is Brian Cuban. I am Anna David. I am here with my weekly 
let's call it a show, four o'clock Pacific Standard Time every Tuesday, interviewing uh, somebody who's in recovery and utterly fabulous and doing a lot to further their cause. People who I call light hustlers, they share their dark to find their light. I am so honored to have with me today, Brian Cuban. You see him in that little box waving. Mm -hmm. He's an attorney and an activist and the best-selling author of two books. I'm going to get the exact titles right. The first book is called Shattered Image, My Triumph Over Body Dysmorphic Disorder. And the second, which just came out this year, is The Addicted Lawyer, Booze, Blow, and Redemption. Um, how am I sounding? I'm hearing a tiny echo. I'm hearing an echo, and there was some pause. Oh, you guys, I am so, so, so sorry. Uh, the tech is completely my fault this time. Sometimes it's the other person's fault. Brian's perfect, so it's not his fault. I had my regular headset go crazy, and this is my backup headset, and I have a new one coming in the mail, and I'm so sorry, so please just don't be an audio snob, That's okay? okay. I'm, I'm using a headset from 2001, so we're okay. <laughs> so you're just luckier than me because these, mine are new, and they're- well, I us baby boomers get attached to our old stuff, you know. <laughs> you guys, the biggest revelation Brian told me before we started recording, he switched from PC to Apple. Sorry, it blew my mind. That's a confession that not many people will make. That's right. Almost as hard as getting sober, switching from PC to Apple. <laughs> one could say one could say harder. Yeah, it could be. Could um, be. I, um, oh, good, good, good. Kenny's here. And oh, good, good, good. David and Kenny Ke do not hear any echo. So thank God. Um, no echo. I just want maybe that's that. just maybe I'm just hearing what's between my ears. <laughs> that we're not talking about that little voice that you hear. We're going to get into that in a minute. So, by the way, if you guys have never seen me interview somebody here, please go share. Even if you have, go share this with your friends. Um, it's a, it's a real coup to get Brian here, and so I hope you'll share it. And uh, please comment if you have any questions. We want to hear them. And if you're hearing this on my podcast, my podcast is Recover Girl. You can get it on iTunes. You can go to anadavid.com/slash/itunes uh, if you want to subscribe. Enough of me. Uh, back to Brian. Now, Brian, you have been sober since 2000, April of 2007, correct? That is correct. Now, what happened? What brought you to the point where you needed to get sober? It was my second trip to a local psychiatric facility here after a uh, about a two-day drug and alcohol-induced blackout, at which time my girlfriend, then fiancé, now wife, she stood by me after all that. Uh, came into my came into our house. She had moved in with me and found me passed out. She did not know about my issues. And we were standing in the parking lot of that psychiatric facility. The first trip was after a near suicide attempt a little over a year. And I started thinking about, one, there wouldn't be a third trip back because I'd be dead. Two, I was probably going to lose my family. I had really started to distance. I'm very close with my family. I live walking distance from my two brothers, Mark and Jeff, and my father. We're in, we grew up in Pittsburgh, and we live walking distance to each other in Dallas. So we're a very close family. But family's distance because they may love us unconditionally, and we hope they do. But there are going to be limits on their willingness to watch us destroy our lives. And I thought of, that my girlfriend at the time was going to leave me, but she didn't. She stood by me. And that was really those three things that really got me in that mm. moment where I grabbed that one moment and said, okay, now it's time. 
there have been other one moments that I didn't grab, uh, but this was the one where I said, now it's time. And the next day I began my journey. What was different that time? Do you have any idea? Uh, that's a great question. I think what was different was just everything coming together at once. A lot of people would say back in 2005, when my two brothers came into my room and I had a 45 automatic on my nightstand and I was planning on ending my life and they took me kicking and screaming down to the psychiatric facility and I refused help, I refused treatment, I refused to go into residential treatment, I refused all of that. I don't know why that wasn't the moment, but this was. I think it was family. I, I, I think this time it was really me focusing on family. Family is very important to me. Family is very important to my brother's family. is very important to my father. And we grew up that way. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was the really focusing on family that, and the fear of losing family. Fear can be a motivator and whatever gets you into that, right? Whatever yeah. it is. For, for me, it was fear of losing my family. So I think that was the difference in that I really wasn't focusing on that at the, the, the prior time when they uh, when they came in my house and I was suicidal, I was focusing on leave me alone. So let's talk about when you had this gun and you were suicidal. You had purchased the gun in order to kill yourself? No, the uh, it was given to me as a Christmas present. But I don't want to say anything triggering or specifics, but I was basically practicing with it uh, up through with it unloaded, obviously, up through the to the days leading up to that moment planning to end my life. Now I can look back. Was it a cry for help? I didn't end my life. Whatever it was, is I was in a mindset of hopelessness. I was in a mindset where I was doing my family a favor mm. if I was not around. And it was a mindset that I tell people when we talk about suicide, I, that it happens quickly. And what I tell people and families, especially when they don't understand, people go, I went into that mindset just like that where all of a sudden I had no will to live and I saw nothing but a black hole. And again, I thought I was doing them a favor. And, and so looking back, it was very fortuitous that I had a friend who I dedicated my first book to, who saw he was in my life, he understood, he, he felt something was wrong and he contacted my brothers and he said, you know, you need to check on Brian and it was the right moment, the right time. They came into my house and it was it was close. I mean, I don't know. I can't predict what would have happened after that if they hadn't come in. But I can say there was a weapon on my nightstand. I intended on using it. And they came in at that moment. Was that the first time in your life you'd felt like that? No, it was the first time in my life I had got that close to acting on it. Did you understand that it was related to addiction and see no way out? Or did you just not even see that that was it? At that time, I really didn't understand. It's interesting. And I remember this very graphically. Uh, and it's something I'll be writing about in the future. I remember when we were leaving, when they were hauling me out of the house, they were, there was alcohol everywhere and there was cocaine everywhere. And there was uh, Xanax. I was doing Xanax and cocaine and alcohol. And people die from that. Yep. And they're hauling me out. And I remember my younger brother saying he's got an addiction issue. And my older brother saying, no, it's depression. And so there was a lot going on, including clinical depression. And sometimes they go hand in hand. Sometimes they exist separately. Uh, 
I was certainly suffering from clinical depression well before I had substance use issues and uh, for drugs and alcohol. But when they all come together and it can be just, you know, a very dark place. And would you say that it was impossible to deal with your uh, depression issues until you got sober? Absolutely, because I was self-medicating. I was self-medicating a lot of issues relating to childhood bullying and a, a difficult relationship with my mom. Now, I don't blame my mom for that. I want people to know uh, I had a difficult relationship, but I don't blame her for what I went through. Parents don't cause addiction. Parents don't cause eating disorders. It's just part of the environment, right. cause and correlation. But uh, I was really trying to mask a lot of pain dating back to my childhood that I was unwilling to deal with. Um, you wrote this amazing piece for CNN.com about the bullying. For anyone who hasn't read that, can we talk about that piece? Sure. Sure. It was a piece. Yes, it was a piece more related to my eating disorder and what is known as body dysmorphic disorder, BDD. And what body dysmorphic disorder is, is when you take a small or even non-existent defect in your body, a perceived defect and exaggerated in your perceived reflection to the point where it affects your ability to function, quote unquote, normally in life. And so as a result of a lot of different things coming together, bullying, fat shaming and things like that, I started to see this monster in the mirror and bullying has a very high correlation with self-image and body dysmorphic disorder. And I, I, I talk about this one event dating back to my teen years growing up in Pittsburgh, PA, where it's funny, my brother, Mark, my, used to teach disco and he had these, this was back in the Saturday night fever, John Travolta air. Imagine John Travolta. Now imagine me in the shiny gold John Travolta pants. No, don't imagine that. Don't imagine that. <laughs> and Mark had given me these shiny gold bell-bottom disco pants that he wore back in those back in those days. This was the mid-70s. And I was had a very close relationship with my brother. But Mark wasn't a big guy, so they fit him well, but they did not fit me well. I was tight. My butt looked like 15 cats back there. And I didn't care, so I wore these pants to school all the time, and I got bullied mercilessly over them. And I ended up being physically assaulted where these bullies, while we were walking home from school, tore them off, ripped them into shreds, and threw them in the street down in my Fruit of the Loom tidy whities mm -hmm. That incident was very traumatic, and I, it was so traumatic that I could go to that spot in Pittsburgh, PA, and show you exactly where it happened. And it was an incident that, from a trauma standpoint, really cemented and really cemented and moved me into a tipping point of how I saw myself and how I perceived other people saw me. Just this quote unquote fat pig, as the kids would call me and mm -hmm. my mom would call me actually. And as she was called by her mom, these things are often handed down generationally. So I don't blame my mom. She was, she was repeating cycles. And so I started to really see myself that way in the reflection, whether it was the window, whether it was a, car reflection that I was this fat pig who would never be loved, who would never get married, who would never kiss a girl, who would never go on a date, who would never have his mother's love, who would never have his father's love. And so things really started to spin out of control for me. And they led into my first problem, which was anorexia where I started to restrict because my entire life in my mind seemed out of control. 
what did I equate acceptance with at that time? And this was back in 1979 and 1980 before anyone was talking about eating disorders for men or women. What did I equate acceptance with? Well, the kids I saw every day. I didn't have the internet. I saw the prom king, the prom queen, the guys who were going to football games on dates, to Dairy Queen, to McDonald's, to the beer parties, and they were all good looking and thin. If I get thin, I will be accepted. I will no longer be bullied. So I started restricting as a freshman at Penn State. And before I knew it, I was engaging in anorexic type behavior. And later that same year, moving into my sophomore year at Penn State, I transitioned into bulimia, binging and purging. And so now we're in 1980, I'm bulimic. And bulimia had only been a clinical diagnosis, I believe, since 1976. I didn't even know what bulimia was. But here's what I did know, Anna. I knew that the act of binging and purging, much like addiction, much like the high of a cocaine high, for that, for like 15 seconds, that act, I felt okay. I felt calm. I felt the next day I would be accepted. The next day I would be loved. The next day the cute girl would talk to me. The next day my mother would love me. But that 15 seconds goes shame. Wait, you broke up for that one sentence, that 15, that 15 seconds. When that fifth, after that 15 seconds is gone, shame sweeps in like a tornado to fill that void. The shame of engaging in an act that I didn't understand. Right. But I had to do again and again and again. And I was a bulimic. How often were you doing it at the height of the behavior? Uh, at the height of the behavior, when I also started, became exercise bulimic, which was uh, obsessive compulsive exercise for the primary purpose of offsetting calories. I was binging and purging in college probably uh, uh, three times a day. And did anybody know? Did you tell anyone? Did they catch you? That kind of thing? Well, there was no understanding back then. I, here's a funny story. I remember I was also obsessively weighing myself at the school infirmary. Back then, that's all we had. We had infirmaries. We didn't have these mental health resources like we have today. And I remember I was weighing myself one, twice a day. And I remember seeing a note, catching a note of my file, catching a glimpse at my file. And there was a note in there that Brian is weighing himself obsessively, but we don't know what to make of it. <laughs> so back then, even the nurses didn't understand eating disorder. So that was it. That was the only time anyone noticed anything or if they only, and they never said anything to me. And your your relationship with your now wife, she didn't have a clue? No. I, I think in retrospect, Amanda, you know, we, we that she there were things that, that nagged at her. But as you know, when you when 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 you're in addiction, substance use disorder, when you're doing these things, you become very good at wearing masks. You yeah. know, you're you're able to wear the mask you need to wear to create the air of respectability for the time you need to create it until you move out of that to the group of people you you know you engage in that behavior with. But as often happens, and has happened with me, you're able the, the ability to wear those masks for the, the time ability shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and eventually it catches up with you. So I think she had nagging, you know, gut instincts, but nothing she could put her finger on. And you went into treatment in April of 2007. No, um, I did not go into residential treatment. I went into 12 step. You went into 12 step. So yes. this is the ward. Did you go into? No, I was go? not admitted. They, they were unable to admit me. I'm a lawyer. I knew what to say. I'm not a danger <laughs> to myself. I'm not a danger to, danger to others. It's funny, but going back to 2005 when I was suicidal, 
I, I'm in a very privileged position. I am very close with my family. We were standing in that uh, in that facility, and my brother Mark, and I'm very, for people who don't know, he's Shark Tank and the Mavericks. I'm very fortunate. He He's wealthy, and he was making calls to residential treatment centers from that lobby, and I refused to go. And I admit I was in a very, and I still am in a very privileged position right. uh, to have that kind of support from my family and from someone who is that financially able to do that. Most people don't have that. And no. so, and so, but I refused to go. So we did what I call the Cuban rehab. They drive me back home. They say, we'll take your car keys, stay in your house for two weeks and everything's going to be okay. My family didn't understand addiction. Like we're, right. we're no different than anyone else. My only thought Anna was no problem. My drug dealer delivers. <laughs> right. Right. That was like, my only thought. Sure. Like any good dealer. That's right. um, and so that was 2005. In 2007, yeah. uh, they wouldn't admit you. You went home. Did you immediately go to meetings the next day? We went home. I helped my I helped my girlfriend move out. She we had moved in together, which was I think one of the key moments in her deciding to stay. I mean, I had to face it, face what I had done, the betrayal of trust, face that it was time. Look her in the eye, and, and I helped her move out. And the next day I walked into my psychiatrist's office who I had been seeing for a couple of years, lying, 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 not telling him, not telling him what was going on. Well, why would you lie to your psychiatrist? Well, shame knows no hourly rate, right? <laughs> if you're ashamed and you don't, and you're not ready to share. And I, st and I unloaded everything but the eating disorder. At that point, I knew I had an eating disorder, but I was too ashamed as a male to tell him. I thought I was the only one. Right. So... We started going through the whole thing. He wanted me to go to residential treatment and my ego is still front and center. I'm not going to residential treatment. I'm a lawyer. There are no lawyers in residential treatment. Of course, I had no clients left. My my legal career had had disintegrated because of my substance use and because because of all that stuff. And, you know, and he's, I know there are no lawyers in residential treatment, right? Right. Sure. 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 And he said something I remember to this day. He said, Brian... You may have a law degree, but you stopped being a lawyer a long time ago. You're an addict. And um, that was kind of a profound moment that I remember. And I said, well, I'm still not going to residential treatment. Right. <laughs> he said, like, what about 12-step? He said, well, would you consider 12-step? I'm not going to 12-step. I drive by there every day. It's literally right next door to his office. Those are sterno bums. They smoke. I, you know, they're homeless people. I, I, can't, I don't smoke. I can't go in any place that people smoke, right? There's always a reason not to recover. Right. I right. can't go to 12-step. There are no lawyers in 12-step. Of course, I walked in there and half of them were lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we were talking, you know, I had Lisa Smith on last week, and we were talking about how you guys just hit at the moment that the the big revelation about lawyers being addicts came out. You know, there's you guys have both been in a number of stories, including a story in the New York Times yes. earlier this year. What took everybody so long to realize lawyers are addicts? Is it your books helped educate people? Well, I don't think you have to remember that we had the big study that came out in 2016, the ABA, the ABA uh, Betty Ford Hazelton study. That was really done by that was done by Patrick Krill, the really kind of the seminal study. But there was also a study in 1990. So it's something that's sort of been just floating under the radar. But it's really a systematic cultural, systemic cultural issue within the legal profession that no one wants to talk about it. 
It is a culture. It has long been a culture of drinking. It has long been a culture of denial. It has long been a culture of the quote unquote high functioning lawyer, right? So as long as we're hitting our marks, even though our life outside of that is collapsing and eventually we will no longer hit our marks. Oh, he or she's high functioning. They're high functioning. So we won't say anything. And plus within the profession ourselves, we're not, we're a profession of thinkers. We're a profession that we don't like to admit vulnerability. And so we don't talk about it. We don't want to lose our license. We don't want to lose our family. We don't want to, we may have a high paying job. We're worried about losing that. And so what happens? We are a profession that likes to wait for consequences to catch up with the problem before we do anything. That is not unusual for a lot of people in addiction, but I think in the legal profession, we are really like that. Now, how do you go from somebody in that position, somebody who is not is lying to his psychiatrist or emitting information to the guy writing books about this? What was that transition like? Well, it started in 12-step. Uh, it started really the day I walked into 12-step and when I picked up my, you know, when I, when I walked into, I don't really understand, you have to understand my first meeting. I sat in there and I was crying. I wouldn't give my name. And I thought I was literally the only lawyer having an issue. And I thought I was the only, I thought I was unique. And as I started hearing the stories, not only lawyers, college students, people who are homeless, high school students. And I realized, okay, there, there are stories to be told. Now, as I really began to think about stories to be told as I got sober, which was the first thing I needed to do, obviously, stringing together sobriety. And then I really began therapy as well, telling my story in therapy because my recovery has been more than 12-step. You have to remember, I'm in recovery from body image issues and an eating disorder as well. So 12-step is- And depression. And depression, that's right. 12-step is geared towards alcohol. I had to go into a lot of other types of therapy that really geared gears towards telling the whole story, not just the alcohol story. And the more I told that story, the more I wanted to tell my story to everybody. And it really all came to a head when I finally told my story on my blog about my eating disorder. Mm-hmm. I went public on my, I went public on my, uh, blog with my eating disorder, I think that's before I told my psychiatrist, because I felt that if I did that, then I won't have to worry about the ridicule, right? You can write it and, and it's still there and not have to worry about it. And all the support I got, all the people who contacted me, men and women saying, thank you so much for telling your story. I'm suffering from an eating disorder. I'm a male suffering from an eating disorder. I'm suffering from body dysmorphic disorder. i at that moment, it really hit on me the power of storytelling. And it was then that I really started to think about writing my first book and really began the journey to advocacy. And what, when did you find out you were a writer? Did you always consider yourself a writer? Was this a great revelation? Uh, I never really found out. I found out like to heal himself by writing. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever that whatever that entailed, whether it was a blog, whether it's writing in my head, I'm always writing in my mind. Uh, it, writing for me wasn't about being a writer. It was about healing. When I wrote something on my blog, I was healing. And so my first book was really a journey of healing for me as much as 
reaching out to other people. And a lot of self-help memoirs have that component to them. And so I really never considered myself a quote unquote writer. But you are. You're a fantastic writer. You're not the typical lawyer writer. God, I don't, I don't, and (laughs) neither is Lisa Smith. Um, But, but no. Which is why I'm not a lawyer. Which is why um, I no longer practice law anymore. Oh, I didn't know you didn't practice law anymore. Full-time advocacy and author. Yes. So was it, uh, did you have concerns? Because you still were practicing law, certainly when you released your first book. Did you have concerns about how that would be perceived? Uh, yes, but I, I also, it was so important to me that that was much more important. That mm-hmm. was much more important. And you and I was really transitioning out at the time I wrote my first book. Okay. Because I really, uh, you have to remember, I went to, I, I lost all my clients. Okay, I, I lost all my clients, and there's a story. The backstory around that is is that at that time, my my brother Mark in 2001 had purchased the Dallas Mavericks, and as part of that, he had purchased uh, our local arena, the American Airlines Center. He bought a half interest in that, and he was really I, I was really this close to having no way to support myself because I lost all my clients. I'm deep in addiction. I wasn't going, this was six years before I went into recovery. So he said, come work for me, kind of, this is your chance to get it together. Right. As, as if that could cure addiction as well, right? Right. And so he basically put me as the point guy for him in the construction of the American Airlines Center, which was a very high profile deal. I was showing up at those meetings with the most powerful high profile people in Dallas, high on coke, right? hungover, drunk. So I failed miserably and... Mark didn't want to see me living under a bridge. And again, I'm in a very privileged position. So he basically kept me on his payroll just to keep me alive and to keep me so I could pay my rent. So that is how that happened. And people ask me, well, didn't he enable you? Well, a lot of times we we view enablement through the rear view mirror, right? right? I can look back with revisionist recovery and say, yeah, he did. But it got me here to this interview moving on 11 years sober. That's the complicated thing is people, and I am sure it happens to you, people will write and say, what should I do? As if there's some formula. Oh, if you cut them off, it will work. If you don't cut them off, it will work. The fact that there's no formula. What, do you, what do you tell people who I tell to people, I, I tell people, what I always try to impress is, look, as painful as it is, there is no blue pill for, there is no pill for this. Okay. There is no, like you said, magic formula. What do you control? Think about what you control. You control you. Okay. Take care of you, whether that's Al-Anon, counseling, family counseling, whether if, if you can get the other people into it, if they're not, all you can do is what you can control is make you the healthiest you you can be. So you can make the healthiest decisions you can make. Because when you let someone else's uh, substance use disorder, whatever it's alcohol or, you know, or, or whatever, opioids or drugs, if you, if you wear that as who you are, that never ends well. Right. Right. I, um, well, we have got to work towards wrapping up. Uh, anybody who, are you still updating your blog? So people can go there to briancuban.com slash blog. Absolutely. I write okay. on, I have a column I write on above the law called The Addicted Lawyer, but those go up and then the same blogs a week later go up on my blog. And you're on all the social medias. 
I am. I am. I was just the American Bar Association just named me one of the top 100 legal tweeters on Twitter. Well, congratulations. <laughs> Look at that. The accomplishments keep coming. And you're just at Brian Cuban everywhere. At B Cuban. Oh, at B Cuban. At B Cuban on Twitter. I have a Facebook page called The Addicted Lawyer. And there are a lot of excerpts from my book on my blog. You can read about me trading uh, Dallas 2006 Dallas Mavericks championship tickets to my cocaine dealer. <laughs> oh, my God. Who doesn't want that? Okay, The Addicted Lawyer on Facebook. I'm just putting that there. And um, oops, I put a weird L at the end. Don't, don't do right. Facebook L. Just, yeah, The Addicted just, Lawyer, just put it in there. Yeah, you guys can find it. Yeah. Um, and anybody uh, you know, who is listening who wants to know more about Brian, I featured Brian in my guide to becoming a light hustler. I featured the seven people who I consider the ones that most embody people taking, sharing their dark to find their light. And so if you guys want that and want to find out more about Brian and Lisa Smith and Ryan Hampton and a whole bunch of other people we know and yes, love. I love them all. I love God. them all. Uh, just go to AnnaDavidCoaching.com and that will be yours. Um, you, I just want to, as we'll just put up a comment from regular Carrie Bates, who says, I pray daily that more attorneys seek to gain knowledge and education about addiction for them to have empathy for us as people rather than just an hourly fee. Thank you for sharing your well, journey. Thank you. Thank you, Carrie. And thank you, David, for your comment. And Anna, I, 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 I know you don't like to hear this, but I was one, I am one of your biggest fans. So, I, what are you talking about? I love to hear that. Say it over so, and over. <laughs> you guys, Brian is the nicest man alive, so I'm not entirely sure he means that, but I, I do, love I hearing it. I well, and, uh, I follow you. I follow everything you do very closely. Well, right back at you, Brian. Thank you so much, you guys. Thank you so much. I will be back here a week from today, four o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Love you all. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, Anna.